0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers using the Library of America as my source material, looking at about 100 pages per episode and giving my thoughts, comments, and a little bit of historical context. In this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of Tortilla Flat, which is John Steinbeck's fourth novel, I guess. We didn't look at his first novel. Um, but this is a, seen as his breakthrough novel. It's the one that got him kind of national attention and was more widely read. His first two novels, Two a God Unknown and The Pastures of Heaven, and, and what was that last one called? The one I didn't look at, uh, The Cup of Gold. Yeah, that, that was actually his first novel, and then he wrote two others, which weren't that like popular. Tortilla Flat was his first really popular novel, and it really opened up a new phase in his career, which, which would take off with his, his really major works like uh, Indubious Battle and of Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath, his, his big Great Depression novels. Um, Tortilla Flat is a Great Depression novel in a lot of ways. It's set in in Monterey in this neighborhood of Monterey called Tortilla Flat where the Paisanos live. The Paisanos are the people of mixed Spanish and Native American heritage. Um, they wouldn't have been considered white by the by the standards of, of most of Anglo America at the time, and although it's set after World War One, where it's it gets a very it has a very Great Depression feel, and that the characters aren't working, there's not a lot of opportunities for them, uh, and much of that's due to the neighborhood, the community, who these people are. But remember also that much of the U.S. economy was in a depression, you know, right after World War One. There was never kind of the twenties boom years. For a lot of the agrarian agricultural sector of the American economy. So if, if you look at it from this rules perspective, the Great Depression or a slump existed long before the 1929 crash. And this has a big impact on kind of the culture wars of the 1920s, which... Really shaped so much of that history, the cultural wars, which you see in things like the Scopes Monkey Trial or the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the nativism and the immigration restrictions, and um, you know just this few, the rise of religious fundamentalism. All these things come out of a feeling of resentment over the abandonment of of the the rule for the urban. And a lot think of a lot of the great nineteen twenties novels. They are a very urban feeling. They're kind of set in. In the city in New York City and you know Fitzgerald of course is I guess typical of that So anyways if, if you haven't read Tortilla Flat you may want to go back and look at the first episode on this Where I look at the first uh, Eight nine chapters of uh, the first nine chapters of the book and set up the characters and set up the context Essentially in Tortilla Flat we are dealing with A community of of paisanos many of whom were World War I veterans although they didn't serve in France They served in the U.S. Army They don't have jobs. They spend a lot of their time seeking out alcohol, wine to drink. Uh, Due to fortune, the main character, um, the main character, the central figure in the novel, Danny, he inherited two homes from his from from the Viejo, his father, and uh, that's where he lives. And he lets these other people move in with him. So it ends up there's like five or six people living with him. Right, Palone is one of the most important. It's also the pirate who's a mentally disabled person who has dogs. He's one of the few people who actually has kind of a steady job, but even that is just like picking up firewood and selling it. And he doesn't really live off that. He saves money for making, for buying a statue, and and we'll see that we'll see more about that and how that plot line ends up in a little bit. So anyways, go back and listen to the first episode if you're interested in it um, Otherwise, I'm just going to pick up with chapter 10 where I left off And then after going through the last few chapters of this book we'll, I'll give some of my final thoughts and what I get out of this novel uh, But one more thing I, It took me a long time to get through this novel Not because it's hard to read, it's really enjoyable I, 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 it's, it's a very dense novel that's it's got a very light feel, but there's a lot of content packed in, not that many pages. And that kind of makes it a kind of a slow, leisurely read. But I also was reading this while I was in the United States and I didn't get a lot of work done when I was there. I was, spent a lot of time with my daughter and just fooling around and, and really not doing that much. Um so I picked up I actually recorded the first episode of this back in the United States and now I'm back in Taiwan. And it's been a while since I've looked at this novel. So I had to actually reread most of the novel before getting into this second half, but um, anyways, that that's beside the point. But if it's a little disjointed from what I said last time, it's because I kind of got some fresh eyes after having reread a bunch of it. Okay, chapter ten is where we left off, and in this chapter, uh, we're reintroduced to Jesus Maria Corcoran, who is kind of presented by Steinbeck as a humanitarian of the group, the real kind of moral figure, the one who always cares for the poor and the, the needy. Um, and he basically runs into a man who's just identified as the corporal. And he's got a small boy. And he's, he's basically being harassed by the police as a drifter, as, as a vagabond, as a vagrant. Um, Jesus Maria sticks up for him says, no, no, this guy's staying with us. He's, he's one of our pals. Turns out he's a Mexican. Um, and he's... Kind of hiding out in 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 America, he his wife left him. It turns out uh, for a captain, the the captain of his, of his of his um unit, and he left with his child into America, and he's trying to find a life for himself there. And that's kind of the setting. And and Jesus Maria Corcoran feels bad for him and brings him back to the house. And at the house, he tells the story, and he tells the story about how. You know, he lost his wife to the Capitan, and how resentful he feels about that. But his attitude is very interesting. He he dreams of his son becoming a general, a general. Uh, it's, it's it's spoken in Spanish there. He wants him to become a general, and the the group thinks it's because of this desire for upward mobility, right? That uh, he you know he wants to become better than his father, and and they really honor that and respect that attitude. But they find out that the child is sick, and and even dying and he dies pretty much just a few pages into this chapter Uh, so we get a nice little story here about hierarchy about kind of the the burden of being kind of an underling in this hierarchical institution like the army but also the impact of of poverty and and race on on these people and this this immigrant basically loses his child uh, because of his poverty but at the end of the chapter, we we learn that his desire for his son to be a general is not so much to get revenge. I mean, that was one idea that they had. Well, he wants to be. He wants to get revenge someday. If his if his son's a general, he can get revenge on the captain someday. Maybe meet him in combat or get him fired or something. But that's not it at all. His dream, the corporal's dream for his son, is that if he's if if a captain can take what he wants specifically his wife from him imagine what a general can take Um, and I'll I'll read that I'll read this final line of of that he that he says to the companions in their home the corporal was a little embarrassed by this when when he was asking about the plan to make him a general it's the duty of a father to do well by his child I wanted Manuel to have more good things than I had is that all Danny cried well, said the corporal, my wife was so pretty, and she was not any puta either. She was a good woman, and that captain took her. He had little epaulettes and a little sash, and his sword was only of a silver color. Consider, said the corporal, in his, and he spread out his hands, that if my captain, with his little epaulettes and his little sash, could take my wife, imagine what a general with a big sash and a gold sword could take. And then Danny and the others think back and they think, wow, this is such a, a good guy. Right. There's a hope for mobility here in the end in poverty. And I, I think that's a theme that runs throughout this whole novel is, is this desire for mobility. Uh, all the companions, all the paisanos, with the exception of maybe Danny, kind of have dreams for themselves. And they're not all grand dreams. Sometimes they're dreams of just having wine for the foreseeable future. Sometimes it's about having a girl Uh Sometimes it's about finding treasure or, or paying back what they owe their friends. Um, here we have a dream of someone's son moving up. And I think that's like, you feel that a lot in, in narratives of poverty in America, I think. Literary depictions of poverty is this dream of moving up. And we're going to see it again, especially in Mice and Men, especially in and Mice and Men, where that whole the whole theme of that is this dream of, to get some land, right? In Dubious Battle has a little bit less of that because they're striking really more for survival dated a uh, survival in these horrible conditions of of being apple pickers um, during harvest time in a very capitalistic, very uh, oppressive environment. But here we have this man who just saw his son die uh, with these dreams. And it's very sad. It's, It's a very sad story. This chapter also gives us a window into the goodness of Jesus Maria Corcoran. In fact, the chapter opens up with this, quote, Jesus Maria Corcoran was a pathway for the humanities. Suffering he tried to rel- rel- relieve, sorrow he tried to assound, happiness he shared. No hard nor haunted Jesus Maria existed. His heart was free for the use of anyone who had use of it. His resources and wits were at the disposal of anyone who had less of either than had Jesus Maria. End quote. Um, and I think Steinbeck thinks that's a good thing. I'll come back to the overall depiction of the Pisanos. Uh, Steinbeck was criticized basically as a, a bit of a racist for presenting the Paisanos as kind of lazy, not working. Uh, Steinbeck defended himself, saying, "And well, I really like these people, and I knew them well, and you know, I lived alongside them for a while, and I wanted to tell their story." Um, and I, you know, I kind of think Steinbeck's right here, and and for various reasons, I don't think that work resistance should be seen as a negative, anyways. I I mean, I. It's only from the the corrupted perspective of the work ethic that you could actually kind of look at these people as 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 bad people, as lazy in some ways. It, um, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Next chapter, chapter eleven. Okay, chapter eleven is, is a little bit about uh, the romantic life of some of these characters. the The main focus here is Big Joe Portagee, um, and essentially, I think he's running away from rain or something. So he's he goes to the home of of the widow, Tia Ignacia, and she's drinking wine and, and Big Joe Portugy drinks wine with her. And eventually they, they start to flirt a little bit. And and it, it seems something's going to happen that night. There's going to be some romance that night. Um, and Big Joe Porgy is kind of a big guy. So she kind of gets a little bit turned on by by that. Um, but there's propriety that needs to be maintained here so there's this debate kind of in within her about whether she should resist or not finally she kind of gives into it and the excuse is we need to conserve gas so we've got to turn off the lights so that's that's kind of the wink wink uh, not that to to make a move but he doesn't big joe Portagy eventually just kind of falls asleep and she's waiting for him to come and, and kind of ravage her but he doesn't come and she finds out he fell asleep and she gets really upset about this. She starts to beat him awake, uh, runs him out on the street, and, you know, he, he kind of just fighting with her or something and kind of has to hug her and hold on to her. Um, and he kind of, like, Big Joe Portagey finds out, like, he kind of likes this girl after kind of holding her, you know, to fight her off. Um, but the policemen end up showing up to, Break up a domestic disturbance and, and and chase them away So that that's all that really happens in this chapter It's a nice little sweet tale uh, It's it's We might be a little bit disturbed by the connotations of violence here There are several examples in this novel of these characters Doing violent things to each other and especially to women And I think from modern sensibilities we'll be a bit bothered by, by that You know, what can I say about it? it it's there in the novel and... I've said before in my other chapters, I, I think Steinbeck, at least at this point in his career, is is struggling with how he portrays women. And, you know, his most recognizable female character in all his literature from East of Eden is a really negative character. Um, and a lot of the women we've seen so far in his novels have been, you know, essentially whores or you know displaced women in a way women try, you know there's a few examples i think in pastures have an example that are you know that have a little bit more of a positive picture but a lot of them it's just you know this kind of commercialized sexuality is in a lot of Steinbeck's early novels and it's there in mice and men too where the main character you know essentially sets up uh, lenny's murder uh, I sh- i'm assuming that's not a spoiler alert for you know a spoiler for anyone you know if you haven't read mice and men yet You've, you know, well, you should. You should have. I think they usually assign that in in school. Anyways, what to make of this chapter? Um, I don't know. It's 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 a very different theme than the previous chapter. Um, but it's, I don't know. I just think it's a nice little vignette, and I, I enjoyed reading this one. I guess I will say you do get the feeling of this search for companionship and the frustrations of, of trying to find companionship and in meeting the values of propriety and, you know, how people miss each other. I guess that, that's kind of the theme here. And it, and it comes up again in this novel in various times where people just miss each other. or You know, they get close to making a connection and, and just life for whatever reason gets in the way of that. All right. Chapter uh 12. chapter 12 is a big one. It's about one of the big uh, items in this whole novel, and that is the pirate sack of gold or treasure. Um, the pirate, of course, has a treasure. Uh, the pirate, as I said before, is a mentally disabled character. He's always thrown at by dogs, but he works and his work is essentially to collect twigs, collect sticks firewood and things and he sells it and he gets a quarter every time and he puts that into his bag and so he's been saving up a quarter a day because he lives basically as beggars and later on living off Danny and his friend's generosity. In this chapter we learn that Danny and his friends start to take this sack of treasure very seriously. Now what's he saving this for? Well he's saving it to buy a a a, I think it's a candle, let me look that up quick. Well, anyways, they want to donate this money, and that's been like $250, which is a lot of money to these people, you know, and they often think about, it, you know, just re- we're reminded in this chapter how much wine they could have bought, how much more secure their life could be if they'd have this money, but they they commit themselves to the pirate's quest, which is to buy this, this kind of gold candlestick for St. Francis for the church. Um, He, and, and there's a lot of this is one of the chapters that has a lot more, I think, symbolism of kind of the King Arthur thing. And in, in a sense, you could have the the sack of gold being, you know, the quest for the Holy Grail or whatever. If, if you want to think of it that way, they even have to defend it at one point. Because big Joe Portigy like steals it and they have to track him down and beat him up actually and get the sack back. And they find out that only like four coins have been taken out. So it's not a big deal. And they're able to pay that back in. Uh, but they remain committed to defending this uh, this treasure. And eventually at the climax of the the chapter, uh, the pirate's able to purchase this thing. He's able to go to the church, but you know, and witness the ceremony in which this is unveiled. He can't bring the dogs though. And there's a little bit of a, conversation about you know allowing the dogs into the church or not sorry what am i thinking I, it's not a can it's really is a statue it's a statue of saint francis is what he say for it. because i remember that it's smiling he or the pirate thinks it's smiling at him throughout the the service um but during the service during the sermon you know the dogs actually scratch at the door and get into the ceremony and we see this friendship that's really built up between the pirate and his dogs of course they always hang around with him. with him um the father doesn't scold him for this and actually says it's good to be loved by dogs and that's a kind of a bright moment in the pirate's story arc um and the pirate at the end of the chapter actually does a mass for the dogs, um, bringing them in, something they were not welcome. They weren't welcome into the church for the mass, but he does his own mass for them. And, um, you know, he's, he's a really religious figure, but he sees the dogs as part of his spiritual community. Um, but that's, that's the chapter. That's chapter 12. Um, now, chapter 13 is, again, um, fun. And it's, again, about... There's a little bit of sex romance in in this one. Uh, In this chapter, we're met um, Angelica. We we meet Angelica. Is that her name? No, Angelica's her mother. We meet Teresa, Teresina, Teresina Cortez. Angelica's her mother. Teresina Cortez has eight children. Um, She's very religious. She often presents her conception in very mysterious terms Um, now she's very poor Uh, we it's it's heavily implied throughout this chapter that Teresina is very promiscuous and that's why she has a lot of children and that's why she lost her her husband Um, but it's never quite outright stated there in the in this chapter Quote, the regularity with which she she became a mother has always astonished Teresina. It occurred sometimes that she could not remember who the father of the impending baby was, and occasionally she almost grew convinced that no lover was necessary. In the time when she had been under quarantine as a diphtheria carrier, she conceived just the same. However, when a question became too complicated for her mind to unravel, she usually laid that problem in the arms of the mother of Jesus, who she knew had more knowledge of, interest in and in, in time for such things than she Teresina often went to confession she was the despair of father Ramon indeed he had seen her while her knee seen that while her knees and her hands and her lips did penance for an old sin her modest and provocative eyes flashing under drawn lashes laid the foundations for a new one um, she's has to care for all these kids though her, her husband abandons her um, she has to care for these eight kids and she does it by beans. So basically she raises beans and, you know, beans are very cheap. Uh, tortillas are very cheap. So basically the diet of these kids is based on beans and tortillas. And she also gives a kind of a religious uh, loyalty to these foods. Um, now the state starts to become concerned about about the, the fate of these these kids. But it actually seems they're doing okay. They're, they're at least being fed, right? Uh, the mother who can't do much else can at least feed her kids. Quote, when you have 400 pounds of beans in the house, you have no fear of starvation. Other things, delicacies such as sugar, tomatoes, peppers, coffee, fish, or meat may come sometimes miraculously through the intercession of the Virgin, sometimes to industry or cleverness. But your beans are there and you are safe. Beans are the roof over your stomach. Beans are the warm cloak against economic cold." So that's that's her life uh, unfortunately there's a bad bean harvest and this pushes her Teresina and her children to near starvation and that's when the gang Banny and his friends work to begin to help tear Teresina um, and they begin to provide her what she can but what they can to her but they don't have beans right because of the ban, bad bean harvest and this really bothers Teresina who thinks the foundation of of survival is is beans. Um, so they actually go out and steal some beans for her um, and at the end of the story and then this makes her happy and she, she's able to go on with her life happy content that she has beans but she leaves the friendship of, of Danny and his friends pregnant and it's, it's highly it's suggested pretty much stated directly that all of the friends had had sex with her at some point during her stay quote. And Terracina discovered, by a method she had found to be infallible, that she was going to have a baby. And she poured a quart of the new beans into a kettle. She wondered idly which one of Danny's friends was responsible. So it seems Danny isn't included into the group, but one of Danny's friends had got her pregnant. But she can't know which one. So there. That's the chapter. Another example of the of the goodness of these people, but also this, this flexible line between being good and being a criminal because to service the needs of this young woman, they're forced to, you know, commit a crime stealing, stealing these beans. Chapter 14 opens uh, nicely with a, with a commentary on time quote, clocks and watches were not used by the paisanos of tortilla flat. Now and then, one of the friends acquired a watch by some extraordinary means, but he kept it only long enough to trade it for something he really wanted. Watches were in good repute in Danny's house, but only as a media of exchange. For practical purposes, there was a great golden watch of the sun. It was better than a watch and safer, for there was no way of diverting it to Torelli. Torelli is obviously the, the Italian man in town who sells wine. In the summer, when the hands of the clock point to seven, it is a nice time to get up. But in winter, the same time is of no value, whatever. How much better is the sun when he clears the pine tops and clings to the front porch, be it summer or winter? That is a sensible time to get up. That is a time when one's hands do not quiver nor one's belly quake with emptiness. End quote. I can't help read this and think about the, the impact of the clock on on just the lives of people in industrial societies. Clocks existed in pre-industrial times. You know, In the 18th century, they had clocks. But it's they're not really part of life until the industrial age when you kind of have wage labor, hourly wage labor. And you have to be at the factory at five or six or seven a.m. every day, regardless of the time of year. Right. You're not going by the cycles of the sun anymore. You're going by the, you know, whatever the the time on the clock is. Right. And this this was a really big change from peasant life. And we see here with Danny and his friends that they're still kind of in this pre-industrial conception of of time. So in chapter 14, it's basically storytelling um, where the paisanos, the friends, get together and they they begin to tell various stories about the community. And some some of these stories kind of venture into more magical elements. I won't get in too much into the stories, but... um, they seem to be an important part of these lives of these people in Monterey in Tortilla Flat. A lot of gossip does take place throughout, throughout the novel. Um, you know, who's with who and, you know, which widow is available or, you know, all. in fact, a lot of the treasure hunting is about basically f- extensions of gossip. You know, who's in jail or whatnot. It's all a big part of these people's lives. Now, Pelon Pallone, Pallone Towards the, at the end of the chapter talks about the value of stories and he complains about the story he just heard and he says it is not a good story there are too many meanings and too many lessons in it some of these lessons are opposite there is not a story to take into your head it proves nothing but I like it said Pablo I like it because it hasn't any meaning you can see and still it does seem to mean something I can't tell what so I like this this is a bit of perhaps commentary on literature itself right uh, a warning against uh, too didactic of a tale. Pallone uh, wants a more straightforward kind of singular lesson. Pablo is embracing kind of the story as being contradictory and nuanced and having different levels and different meanings and just being a story, right? Not all stories need to have a lesson or, or, or mean anything, right? So, um, and maybe that's something we can take out of Tortilla Flat. Maybe we shouldn't think too much about the lives of these people and just uh, enjoy their adventures as, as they are. In chapter 15 we start to move towards uh, the climax of the tale Um, and we start out with the discussion again sort of about time we we saw in the past chapter how the kind of the clock time didn't really matter too much for the people of Tortilla flat and we get the same kind of thing suggested here for the months and the years quote there's a change of quality about Monterey nearly every day in the morning the sun shines in the windows on the west side of the streets and in the afternoons on the east side of the streets. Every day, the red bus clangs back and forth between Monterey and Pacific Grove. Every day, the canneries send a stink of reducing fish into the air. Every afternoon, the wind blows in from the bay and sways in the pines on the hill. The rock fishermen sit at the rocks holding their poles, and their faces are graven with patience and cynicism. On Tortilla Flat, above Monterey, the routine is changeless too, for there are only a given number of adventures that Cornelia Ruiz can have with her slowly changing procession of sweethearts. She has been known to take again a man long since discarded. In Danny's house, there was even less change. The friends had sunk into a routine which might have been monotonous, but for any but for any but for anyone but a paisano. Up in the morning, to sit in the sun and wonder what the pirate would bring. The pirate still cut pitch wood and sold it on the streets of Monterey. But now he bought food with the quarter he earned every day. Occasionally, the friends procured some wine, and then there was singing and fighting um but this seems to burden danny most of all who just escapes he just he just leaves and abandons his friends one day um abandons the house and and goes off and we really don't know at this point what he is doing or where he goes in fact life is so kind of lazy in tortilla flat that they don't even notice danny's gone for a few days and and they think well When he wasn't showing up, they figured he was just with a woman. But when he didn't show up after like a week, they think, well, maybe something's up with him. Where did he go? And they start to kind of search for him. They hear stories. They hear all these reports of Danny's various sins. And it's a lot of fun to read about all of what people are saying about Danny's exploits. In the previous chapter, we learned how important gossip was in in these people's lives. And here it comes back and, you know, and it helps them get a feed of where uh, Danny might be. One report. Danny committed partial rape last night. Danny's been milking Mrs. Palancio's goat. Danny was in a fight with some soldiers the night before last, on and on. So these stories are filtering back. Um, It's not till they get to Torelli that they get a better kind of story, a more accurate story of what Danny may have been up to. And what they learn from Torelli is that Danny essentially sold the house to Torelli for something like $5. It was really a ridiculously uh, low amount of money. Um, actually, it's $25, but it's, it still seems to be a, a little bit of, of money. And Torelli is able to show this document he has that says, See, Danny sold it to me. For the front, this is a big betrayal. Um, and I think there was an event earlier where. like Danny stole Pallone's shoes or something and this was also seen as a betrayal you don't steal from people in the group of course they've been kind of stealing from Danny all along by living rent-free in the house but that's beside the point this kind of crossed a line but by kicking them out of the house essentially selling the home to Torelli would mean they wouldn't have a place to live this was seen as the ultimate betrayal Um, but when they find out that Torelli didn't get the like the document notarized or finalized in the courthouse they like burn it they steal it and burn it and kind of null nullify the agreement between Danny and Torelli which kind of saved them to have the house um so that that's that chapter chapter um 15 so in chapter 16 Danny returns he returns after kind of his drunken um binge of crime and other exploits um and he kind of takes on the form of the Fisher King we see him as we, we assume he's Arthur much of the story if this is a arthurian kind of metaphor but i got more of the feeling and in in this chapter of, of danny as the fisher king if you see on page 512 oh it was a pity to see him that danny had fought for lost causes or any other kind that danny who could drink glass for glass with any man in the world that danny responded to the love look of love like an aroused tiger now he sat on his front porch in the sunlight his blue jeans "'knees drawn up against his chest, his arms "'hanging over, his head dangling from limp ri- wrists, his head bent "'forward as though by a heavy black thought. "'His eyes had no light of desire, nor displeasure, "'nor joy, nor pain. Poor Danny! "'How has life left thee? "'How thou sittest like the first man "'before the world grew up around him, and like "'the last man, after the "'world had eroded away. But see, Danny, "'thou art not alone. Thy friends are caught "'in, thy state as in this state of thine. "'They look from thee "'from the eye-corners. They wait, like expectant little dogs for the first waking movement of their master. One joyful, joyful word from thee, Danny, one joyful look, and I will bark and chase their tails. Thy life is not thine own to govern, govern Danny, for it controls others' lives. See how thy friends suffer. Spring to life, Danny, and thy friends may live again. End quote. Um, even the language kind of filters into this old, older style English with the thighs and the these and all that. But i get the sense really of, of the the imagery of the of the fisher king the wounded king with the with the wound that won't heal right left to guard the holy grail with his small group of companions in, in constant misery um and endless misery and that that's how i kind of feel uh, about danny at this point what can they do though to to cheer danny up and they decide essentially to to have a party and it's it's kind of a nice way to to end the novel is we have this big party for for Danny to try to cheer him up. And we quickly learn how many people Danny affected in town and that his good deeds were not unrecognized by the other people. And everyone kind of joins in. When word gets out that they're having a party for Danny, other other people take part in it and it becomes a whole community event. The community uh, comes together entirely um, for him. And we get this description here. That was a party for you. Always afterwards when a man spoke of a party with enthusiasm, someone was sure to say with reverence, did you go to the party at Danny's house? And unless the first speaker was a newcomer, he had been there. That was the party for you. No one ever tried to give a better one. Such a thing was unthinkable. For within two days, Danny's party was lifted out of possible comparison with all other parties that ever were. What man came out that night without some glorious cuts and bruises? Never had there been so many fights. Not fights between two men, but roaring battles that raged the whole clots of men, each one for himself. Oh, the laughter of women, thin and high, and brittle as spun glass! Oh, the ladylike shrieks of protest from the gulch! Father Ramon was absolutely astonished and incredulous at the confessions the next week. The whole happy soul of Tortilla Flat tore itself from restraint and arose into the air, one ecstatic unit. They danced so hard that the floor gave way in one corner. The accordions played so loudly that afterwards they were windbroken, like foundered horses. And Danny! Just like his party knew no comparison, so Danny defied emulation as a sovereign. In the future, let some squirt with excitement. Did you see me? Did you see me ask that those black wenches for a dance? Did you see us go round and round like tomcats? And some old wise and baleful eyes would be turned on him. End quote. And I think there's even a suggestion here that, that all the women would report that they went to bed with Danny that night. So it, it becomes kind of a heroic final battle. I mean, it's a kind of the, the last... F- Battle in the last party. It's it's a mixture of all these things, and at the end of the party, Danny essentially just drops dead. That's it. Doctors come to check him out, but he's done for. So it's just really this final, um, the final fight, the final pleasure, the final happiness, the final drink, all of this into one, and um, and this one final party, and that that's the chapter. So it's a really nice ending. It, it's completely obviously fictionalized it's it's exaggerated but it's it's a nice way for for danny to go um, enjoy um at the end of his life and then the final chapter chapter 17 so um you know there's this hint that maybe danny was struggling with a supernatural force and whatever that might be the symbolism i don't know it's just you know at the end of the party he, he dies that's that's the main thing for for the plot the next chapter is this funeral, uh, Danny's funeral, which also becomes a big public event. Quote To quote Steinbeck here, Death is a personal matter, arousing sorrow, despair, fervor, or dry-hearted philosophy. Funerals, on the other hand, are social functions. Imagine going to a funeral without first polishing the automobile. Imagine standing at the graveside, not dressed in your best dark suit, and your best dark shoes, polished delightfully. Right. So the idea of a funeral as uh, something that can bring a community together, I think is... Is powerful here and i I think Steinbeck has this in mind in other contexts i think certainly in in grapes of wrath in mice and men a death is there is a very private and lonely and despairing thing but that's reflecting the loneliness of those characters the migrant workers here we have a community so death can be the community event there's a moment in, in dubious battle where mac is helping deliver this baby and i'll talk about this in the next episode i'm sure trying to deliver this baby and he doesn't really have the training for it and you know the question comes up like what if she died and he thought well we needed the community to come together and even if she would have died it would have been this community event it would have it would have brought the, the the strikers together uh in a way so the importance of the funeral as a, as something that binds community together we find how strong with danny's death in his final event how strong this community was despite the fighting and the jails and the conflicts between people that you did have a community up here in tortilla flat with all of their economic isolation now a- after the funeral pallone i think it is buys two gallons of of wine and they begin to celebrate it and back at the house and they accidentally start a fire there. And instead of putting out the fire, which they have the chance to do, they let Danny's house burn down. The house dies as Danny did in quote, one last glorious, hopeless assault on the gods. So they assume it was better to lose the house this way than to be kicked out by whoever's going to inherit the house from from Danny. Uh, So that's the story, the community lives on. community of friends lives on despite Danny's Danny's death okay so my overall feelings about this I'm not going to say too much because I've already been going on too long about this and I I, maybe I don't want to impose too much analysis on this Um, but we do need to deal with the the way the novel is criticized in the sense of how Steinbeck portrayed the Paisanos essentially I think this must come down to this idea that work resistance in any form is a negative and i think the only people who could make this argument are those who are burdened by the work ethic in some way uh, i don't have this burden i why well, I, I guess i do have the burden but at least intellectually i'm i'm beyond it i don't see work resistance as a negative i i don't see how hard work pays off anymore and even if it did in the early 20th century it doesn't seem to work for these people and in our day and age there's no correlation between work and effort and sacrificing and income uh that's You know, if 2008 proved anything, it's that, you know, you can mess up the economy and still get the biggest paycheck, right? And the people who worked hard and paid their mortgage, you know, got, lost their homes. So there's not a relationship between income and work anymore. And, you know, in the years of the Great Depression, in the 20s, I think there was a growing feeling too that hard, you know, you working hard, it didn't get you anywhere. That's the whole theme of that song, um, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime, right? I built this nation. I went to war for it come back and, you know, I'm thrown out on the breadline. So the work ethic is, is the problem, not the people who resist it and find alternative ways to have happiness in life. You know, I'm, I kind of want to celebrate this work and the characters for the precise reason that it honors people for actively resisting work and seeking out solidarity and happiness and community rather than drudgery. We can think back to langston hughes novel not without laughter which did a very similar thing which asked this question about you know what is the meaning of pleasure for people who are in very oppressive situations or impoverished situations and for langston hughes it's 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 somehow even more than just a survival strategy it's essential to you know finding meaning in life All right if you can't get it through work if there's no kind of square way legit way to move up in the world and get happiness to the traditional means of, of hard work and effort and sacrifice, then why not through pleasure? And, and the Paisanos go beyond that. I mean, they commit crime. They spend much of the novel in jail, or various characters do. The Paisanos knew that there's little for them outside of Tortilla Flat, and little inside except for drink, women, and their petty adventures, right? And, um, you know, hard work wasn't going to save them. You know, even one of the richest men in town, right, Torelli, is, is not was an Italian. These men and some of the women's side characters are work resistors because they know work is futile, right? And if we can get beyond the moralism of the work ethic and the moralism of their promiscuity, I think we can find really something to celebrate in, in their their lives. Simply because it is such a direct contrast to the the values of mainstream American work ethic. And for me, that's going to be the main thing I get out of this work because that's what's been on my mind a lot lately. I'm sure there's a lot more we could say. We could get a lot deeper into the Arthurian mythology and all that stuff that's being hinted at. But I, I want to see this novel, for me, as largely a novel about work resistance. The overall arc of the characters seems to be, in some cases, rather shallow. Some character arcs are a little bit deeper. In general, though, we find this group of people coming together Despite their diverse personalities and values, you know some are very religious. Some, you know, one character has a mental disability. Some characters spend time in jail. Some were in the army. Some are presented initially as very kind of bad and rough people, like Joe Portagey. But they come together um, and do good things for their community, right? They're, these aren't people who are going to be written about in the history textbook, history books. But they have done great things for the people that they encounter with. And they're essentially good people. That's one thing that Steinbeck really wants to insist on here. He writes of these people as the knights of their own table. They have a castle, they have a leader, and they have quests. But there are no real grand adventures they go on. Only minor quests that shape, even if not very profoundly, the community of Tortilla Flat. And it's proven at the end when people come out to honor Danny's life. Try to cheer him up and then honor his, his, his life at his funeral. Their good deeds are not written down, but they provide immense comfort for people from time to time. These daily acts of goodness and camaraderie have probably saved our economy billions in mental health care. right? And there's a really wonderful little book by James Scott called Two Cheers for Anarchism, where he makes this point that, you know, drink in the bar, the barkeeper is one of the great unspoken heroes of American mental health. right? I know it's a cliche that of the bartender dispensing you know mental health care but there's probably a lot of truth to it too that people who are depressed maybe not clinically depressed and chronically depressed but just having a bad time they go and seek out friendship or at least a, 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 someone who's going to listen to them at a bar whether it's the bartender or the person next to them and they come out feeling better about themselves and their life and their situation you know and that's that's value for the community right every one of us when we choose to be our brother's keeper are providing important services that help our society survive and so yeah these people aren't contributing to gdp in any significant way except maybe through their crime but that's a whole other issue we can reread the fable of the bees and and see what mandeville would have said about the paisanos but even as all that aside just by being a community they're providing value the importance of the everyday is actually written out for us in the first prelude chapter to this. And we learn that these three Paisanos who served in the military never went to France. They performed only minor military duties. None of them picked up the rifle, but they apparently contributed something to the war effort. We can point that out to just the racism of the U.S. military at the time, but I think Steinbeck is making a point that the unwritten and the unnoticed is as grand as the written. And in future novels, Steinbeck will take up these themes a bit more. Uh, Of course, making a grand epic about one family of frontier farmers in the east of Eden. uh, Doing a very similar thing, making a grand story about a family of people escaping Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl. Anyways, what are some of the themes here? I'm not going to say too much about these themes just because I've already said so much about this book but uh, i did list some of the important themes that we can cross-reference with other american writers uh, and that's why i do this because you can kind of kind of make a running index of the important themes of american literature so we can come back to it and say this is what american writers are really getting at collectively through their work uh, one of course is race you have both the racial identity of the paisanos and how other people saw the paisanos racially. There's you know, we kind of spend most of our time within Tortilla Flats, so we don't get a lot of this external racial tension. We have that between Torelli and the Paisanos, for instance. Um, but just how important the mixed heritage, mixed racial heritage is in American history is is a big thing. And we can't forget it. Um, the Paisanos themselves, insist they were white and Steinbeck mentions that. But they're obviously mixed race, but so was almost everyone else in this country, if you go back far enough, right? Uh, mythology um, America's a young nation and they need they need mythology and they need legends and here Steinbeck is, is referring to Arthurian legend going to England um, but he also, within the story itself there's legends there's a legend of Danny there's a legend of uh, Mrs. Ruiz the widow uh, the legend of the woman with the eight children these legends build up in time and even though they're very minor and they're just local stories they're part of these people's lives right there's a very local history and it's you know it's something that historians often miss they can't do the local very well and not many historians read and study local history they, they often ask big questions right it's actually f- funny it's funny that's novelist to do a much better job of getting a local history I, i've been rereading it um, as you know preparation for the movie that's coming out i mean they'll probably be already be out by the time this episode's uploaded but um, I've been recording this. It's only August thirty first, but in uh, in it you have so much care taken to the history of that community, um, and it's, it's such a re- memorable part of that story. So mythology, you know, you know, let's let's celebrate people creating mythology and legend and and, and local history. Uh, another theme is just work. There's not much of it here, but work resistance. um, People choosing through their life choices, choosing through their decisions they make throughout their life to not work, to find other ways of making a living, whether through begging or relying on friends or scraping by or, or whatever, or spending time in jail. There's all these different ways of avoiding work, and through that you can you can find alternative, you know, happiness. Right, the possibility of happiness of the good life. Uh, that doesn't involve work. I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. Um, there's a lot of sex in this novel. So we can put sexuality. And, and the you know the role of women in this novel is largely a sexual role. I think pretty much all the women we meet here. Have sex with one or more of the paisanos at various times. So that's probably not necessarily a good thing. It might be something that Steinbeck is still blinkered by. At this point in his career. Um, but... There is a lot of sex here you know, it's not hinted at directly but or it's not stated directly but it's often hinted at in various ways um, but these are very sexually active uh, young people i mean they are young people so what do you expect right uh, a lot of their quests a lot of the things they're concerned about have to deal with with finding lovers and although there's a tension a worry about someone who has a lover too long that they'll be a threat to the community of of men and danny's friends don't want him like for instance with ruiz too much <laughs> because they're afraid she, she's going to steal his heart and steal their, their time, right? I think it's a week. Right? You can spend a week with a woman, but anything more than that is a problem. Um, alcohol and alcoholism here. I, I'm really eager to get to John Barleycorn. In fact, I'm strongly thinking about just going to Jack London as my next series here, because so much I want to deal with that book, John Barleycorn. But these characters are, are pretty much all alcoholics. Um, they rely heavily on wine to get through the day. They spend a lot of their money that they make on on wine, and it's it's a big theme here. It's it's part of their solidarity, but it's it's something perhaps again from modern sensibilities. We might question, you know, how much is Steinbeck praising essentially alcohol dependency? Um, Of course, I grew up watching Cheers, you know, and all the characters in that show were alcoholics essentially, um, either practicing or or previous. not all the characters. well all the the patrons were all alcoholics anyways next scene brotherhood um brotherhood solidarity whatever you want to call it that's here on every page right this group of people coming together as as, as a community Everything. so poverty poverty and the hope for mobility is an important Story here, we have characters who all—all all these characters have dreams of moving up, whether they're realistic dreams or just thrown out there uh, for for the facade. Uh, is It's not always clear, but there are these are people who do have dreams, and they couldn't You know, their starting point may be poverty, but they have dreams for mobility. None of the characters are very mobile, though, and in any real sense, so they're stuck but there's there's hope and in some of these other stories that that steinbeck wrote there's mobility as a theme but it's physical mobility here the characters don't move that much i mean they're pretty much only in tortilla flat and the neighboring areas but there the mobility is more you know this kind of dreaming of alternatives and we'll get this again in mice and men where i guess the physical mobility and the dream of upward mobility are combined in in george and lenny's dream to, to have land Technology. Uh, the, whole, the whole story about the the vacuum cleaner is a story of the technical divisions between people in early 20th century America. There were still big chunks of America that weren't electrified until after the New Deal and the WPA kind of raised the standard. I think it may have not even been to World War II that electricity came to a lot of parts of the country. So these technical divisions existed and, you know, that you could sell a vacuum cleaner without any working engine because you knew they didn't have electricity, that the that cleaner was just a show piece. is rather interesting. It just reinforces the idea that there were parts of the country that didn't have electricity yet. Um, and it, it, pl- Steinbeck's able to play with this in various ways. Like in the scene where, um, what's her name, um, Tia Ignatia is trying to seduce Joe Portigy, and she uses the excuse of "We need to save oil," so she turns off the light. In these ways, technology plays a role in the plot um, and in the fabric of life for these people religion is a big theme here all these characters are Christian they're all they're very uh, various levels of religiosity although none of them they spend a lot of time in confession right or at least they should be spending a lot of time in confession so they don't always take the moral guidance of the religion seriously but they're all very religious and of course the pirate is the best example of that and one of the major events of the novel is the friends saving this money helping the pirate buy the statue of st. Francis for the church Finally, for a theme, we have mental disability. Uh, Here we've got the character of the pirate. Um, Steinbeck's done this previously uh, in Pastures of Heaven, where you have the character um, who, who, a young man, a a boy with a mental disability, who ends up in a mental institution. Uh, There's another character there who sort of ends up in a mental institution. I think there's two stories there about mental disability. And then, of course, anyone who knows Steinbeck knows about Lenny. So... Uh, the pirate is is a character that's in that tradition. So that kind of does it for Tortilla Flat. Thank you so much for listening. I, I want to end with a quote, which I think kind of sums up some of the theme of the novel, and it comes right at the end. Quote: This must this thus must it be, O wise friend of Danny? The cord that bound you together is cut. The magnet that drew you has lost his virtue. Some stranger will own the house. Some joyless relative of Danny's. Better that this symbol of holy friendship, this good house of parties and fights of love and comfort, should die as Danny died in one last glorious, hopeless assault on the gods. They sat and smiled, and the flames climbed like a snake to the ceiling and broke through the roofs and roared. Only then did the friends get up from their chairs and walk like dreamy men out of the door. Quote. So um, we see this kind of bittersweet ending where this community, the thing that tied that community together, Danny and the home is destroyed, but we have hope that the solidarity in the community that was formed in the pages of this novel could survive him. Um, but we don't, we aren't given that story. So um, we'll end, we'll try to end on a hopeful note if we can. So that does it. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, I'll be back soon with another episode in this, in that episode, we'll be looking at *Indubious battle and I'll probably spend two episodes on, on that uh, great novel. Uh, of labor conflict in the orchards of California. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 100 pages.